Well, once again this morning, I'd like to turn your attention to the book of Revelation. Turn with me to the book of Revelation chapter 3, verses 7 through 13. We'll be in Revelation chapter 3, verses 7 through 13. We're actually nearing the end of our sermon series where we've been looking at the seven churches who are addressed by Jesus in the book of Revelation. Next week will be the final sermon where we'll look at the church of Laodicea. But today we'll continue on by looking at the church in the ancient city of Philadelphia, the ancient city of Philadelphia. So read with me what Jesus says to them, starting in verse 7 of chapter 3. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write, the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming upon the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of the Lord. Well, if you were here last week, you might remember that we looked at the church in Sardis. We saw what kind of church they were. They were a spiritually complacent church. They had a good reputation, of course. They had a reputation for being alive. But in the assessment of Jesus, which in the end is the only assessment that matters, in the assessment of Jesus, they were actually dead. They were a church without a pulse. Well, if there were a mirror opposite of the church in Sardis to be found among all these seven churches, it would be the church we're looking at today. It would be the church in the ancient city of Philadelphia. In the eyes of the world, the believers in Philadelphia had no reputation to boast in. In fact, it says in verse 8 that they were of little power. So there was nothing about this church that was particularly impressive. There was nothing about them that would draw significant attention. But in the eyes of Jesus, these believers in Philadelphia were entirely commendable. They were not spiritually complacent like the church in Sardis. 
No, the believers in Philadelphia were faithful. They were faithful to Jesus. So I want you to to understand the juxtaposition there. I want you to, to see that contrast that in the eyes of the world, the church in Sardis, major success. The church in Sardis was a major success. But in the eyes of Jesus, they were an epic failure. Whereas for the church in Philadelphia, they were nothing in the eyes of the world. And yet to Jesus, they are the unqualified success story among all these seven churches in the book of Revelation. And that makes you wonder something. It makes you wonder, what does it mean for a church to be successful? How do we measure whether or not a church is prospering? And is it possible, is it possible that our assumptions about church success are mistaken? If Christ's commendation of the church in Philadelphia tells us anything, it tells us that the way church success is often measured in our world today may just be different than how he measures it. When it comes to the church, we are so often quick to look at the outward appearance of things. We ask questions like, how's the budget? Is your Sunday morning attendance increasing? Are you building a big staff? Your social media presence, is it polished enough? Now, I'm not saying that we shouldn't care about these things. Budgets, attendance, staff, social media, these things are not unimportant. We should care about them. But at the exact same time, we need to ask, are these things even close to being the top metrics of success for a church? I'm not so sure. And yet we often treat them that way. We often judge a church by how well they're performing in these areas. We are quick to assess things by outward appearances. But we need to hold our horses on. We need to not do that. Because Jesus has his own metrics of success that he wants us to consider this morning. And that brings me to the big idea for our sermon for today. I want you to see that by grace through faith, this church, the church that's gathered here in this theater today, this church can be a gospel success story in the eyes of Jesus. We, just like the church in Philadelphia, we can be the kind of church that Jesus will gladly commend. Praise God. We don't have to settle for being like the church in Sardis. No, by faith in Jesus Christ. By obedience to him, by his grace, we can strive to be more like the church in Philadelphia. And I'm assuming that that's why you're here today. If you're a covenant member of this church, if you're a covenant member of Emmaus, I'm going to go out on a limb and I'm going to say that you bothered to get up this morning and you bothered to drive to this movie theater because you care about this church. You are invested in this church. You want to see this church be true to the gospel doctrine that we've received so that we can practice gospel culture to the glory of our great God. I'll actually go ahead and put my cards on the table and say, that's why I'm here. That's why I'm standing before you today. I want want Jesus to look at this church and see a trophy of his grace. I want Jesus to look at us and see a gospel 
success story. And so I want to invite us all. Let's come around this text and let's ask a question. Let's ask, what kind of church does Jesus want us to be? When he looks upon us right now in this moment, what kinds of things is he wanting to see in us? I think the church in Philadelphia provides us with three characteristics. Three characteristics that Jesus wants to see. The first of these characteristics is Jesus wants us to be a church whose witness is faithful for him, or whose witness for him is faithful, rather, even when we are at our weakest. He wants us to be a church whose witness for him is faithful, even when we're at our weakest. Emmaus, let me tell you how we won't be successful. We will not be successful by our own strength, our own stamina, our own savvy. We will not be successful because of the skills that we possess inherently. No, our success will be found in one thing only. It will be found in our, our insistence that Jesus Christ be magnified. That's where our success lies. In the first two verses of our passage, we find that two things were true of the church in Philadelphia. Two things. They were a church with little power, but they were also a church with a great opportunity. Jesus says to them, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. And in the, in the very next breath, Jesus tells them this. He says, I know you are weak. I know you are on the verge of being powerless. And yet this is what you've done. You've held fast to my word. You've not denied my name. You've acknowledged me before men. This actually reminds me in some ways of the Apostle Paul's relationship with the church in Corinth. Multiple times in his correspondence with the Corinthians, Paul talks about his own weakness. He even starts out his first letter to the Corinthians by saying, I didn't come to you proclaiming the gospel with a bunch of lofty speech. No, I came to you in weakness. I came to you with fear. I came to you with trembling. And Paul even doubles down on this at the end of his second letter to the Corinthians. He declares that he even boasts in his weakness. He's proud of it. Because it's through human weakness that the power of Jesus Christ is most prominently displayed. And yet Paul was no navel gazer. Paul was not so focused on his own weakness that he missed the great opportunity that stood right in front of him because he knew that despite how powerless he was, God had given to him a mission. So he says in 1 Corinthians 16, 8 and 9, I plan to stay in Ephesus until Pentecost. Here's why. A wide door for effective work has been opened to me. Do you see what Paul's saying there? Do you see that he was positioned much the same way that the church in Philadelphia was positioned? On the one hand, Paul had little power to speak of. And yet, on the other hand, he saw a great opportunity to be a witness for Jesus Christ. I wonder if you see the opportunities that stand before you. I know you feel powerless. 
I know you have a sense of your own weakness, but I guarantee you that if you are a follower of Jesus, he has put before you an open door for gospel witness. Somewhere in your life, somewhere in your own sphere of influence, there is a great opportunity. Do you recognize it? Do you see it for what it is? When it comes to our involvement in the mission of God, one of the mistakes we make is we give in to the temptation to think that we must create our own opportunities. We have to do the work. We have to do the, the heavy lifting. We assume that the whole thing hinges upon us. We assume the whole thing hinges on our performance. We assume it hinges on our competence, on our evangelistic know-how. And we end up thinking all kinds of terrifying thoughts. We fret, what if I say the wrong thing? What if I misspeak? What if I speak up at the wrong moment? What if I make somebody angry? What then? Have I just screwed the whole thing up? If you've ever heard the voice of those fears haunting you, ringing in your thoughts, if they've ever kept you from being a faithful witness for Jesus, then I want you to hear something today. I want you to hear that your opportunities for gospel witness are not ultimately dependent on your strength. They are not ultimately dependent on your eloquence. They aren't ultimately dependent on your ability to read the room. No, the open door for gospel work is from Jesus Christ. He is the one who by his sovereignty, by his providential care, has granted it to you. He has granted you the open door. And if you ever need confidence in that, well, just look at how he describes himself in verse 7. He calls himself the Holy One. Now, this speaks to his divine nature. We believe, of course, that Jesus Christ is truly human. Like, like in his in incarnation, he took on a human nature. And yet we also believe of him that he is truly divine. Even as he is truly human, he is also truly God. And it's because of things like what we see here in verse 7. He is the Holy One. This is exactly what it says of Yahweh in the prophecy of Isaiah. Yahweh is called the exact thing that Jesus is called here. He is the Holy One of Israel. That's our God. That's who we worship today. But Jesus is not only the Holy One. He's also the one who is true. Meaning that his word to us, his, his promises that he has made, these things can be trusted. He is trustworthy through and through. He doesn't speak in hollow platitudes. He doesn't heap up empty phrases just to make us feel better in the moment. No, when Jesus says, I have opened a door for you, he means it. He means it with all his heart, and you can bet your life on that. Look at what else he says of himself. He claims to have the key of David that, no one, that, that opens and no one will shut. And that shuts, and no one can open. Now, this speaks of his authority. Looking back at the prophecy of Isaiah once again in Isaiah 22, these exact words that are, that are written here 
These exact words are written in Isaiah to describe a man from the Old Testament named Eliakim. Eliakim was a royal delegate who was granted authority over the house of David. He was given the keys to David's house. And these words which described Eliakim for Isaiah are lifted out of the prophecy of Isaiah and they're put right here in the book of Revelation to show that Jesus has authority over the kingdom of God. But make no mistake, friends, Jesus does not need to be granted that authority. He doesn't need to receive it from somewhere else. No, he has it intrinsically. It's not delegated to him. He has it by his very own nature because of who he is. He is the divine, sovereign, anointed king of kings and Lord of lords. So we can have confidence. We have every reason to be confident when it comes to our open door for gospel witness that stands before us. We have every reason to believe in the authority of Christ. And so we don't have to wring our hands. And we can even just show up in our weakness for the sole purpose of pointing other people to Jesus. And if we will do that, if we'll just show up and start opening our mouth and talking about Christ, I promise you something. He will not leave you hanging. That's the very promise that is given to us in the Great Commission. Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth belongs to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. And guess what? I'll be with you. I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. Emmaus, are we believing that? Are we trusting in the one who says, I will be with you? Always. I will not leave you or forsake you. That actually brings us to the second characteristic I want us to look at. Jesus desires for us to be a church that trusts him in turbulent times. Listen, being successful as a church does not mean that there's always smooth sailing. In fact, the Bible tells us the opposite. Jesus tells us that we should expect some choppy waters. The scriptures do not varnish this, that, that getting a group of people together and assembling this thing called a church, it's going to be messy. Right? It's not going to be easy by any stretch of the imagination because we're going to face challenges within. Right? We're going to face challenges internally within our community. But not only that, we will also face challenges from outside. We will face external challenges. And that's really what Jesus focuses on, focuses on here in this text. He focuses on that because the church in Philadelphia was a persecuted church. They were a beleaguered church. Look at verses 9 and 10. He says, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews but are not. Behold, I will make them come and they'll bow down at your feet, and they'll learn something. They'll learn that I have loved you. Jesus says, because you've kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour that is coming upon the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. So I just want you to notice, in these verses, Jesus promises a couple of things. He gives two assurances to this persecuted church in Philadelphia. In verse 9, he tells them, 
I will vindicate you. And then in verse 10, he tells them, I will deliver you. So in the turbulent times that the church in Philadelphia was facing, promise number one was vindication. Promise number two was deliverance. Let's look at these. Look with me first at vindication. Jesus pledges to vindicate his people in front of those who persecute them and who oppose them. In the case of the church in Philadelphia, persecution was coming from the local Jewish synagogue. Now, to fully appreciate what's going on here, you have to understand something. You have to understand the background. You have to understand the dynamics and the the relationship between the Jewish community and the Roman Empire. Now, obviously, the Romans were the dominant world power at this moment in time. They were going around to different places in the world, and they were conquering different peoples and different lands and different cities, and they were bringing people under the rule of the empire. They were bringing these different places under the occupation of Rome. And when the Romans would do this, one of the things that they would require is they would, they would require people to, to adopt the official religion of Rome. Like if Rome conquered you, If Rome conquered your town, you had to give up your own religious beliefs and you had to adopt theirs. You had to worship their gods. You had to take on their religious rituals. You had to take on their worldview or else. Or else you would find yourself on the wrong side of the sword. Of all the peoples that Rome conquered, there was one group that enjoyed religious exemption. There was one group that was not forced to convert to the cult of the Roman Empire, and it was the Jews. As long as the Jews did not pose a threat to Caesar, they were permitted to practice their religion. The Romans would more or less leave them alone, as long as at the end of the day, they came down on the right side. They came down on the side of the empire and confessed, Caesar is Lord. Well, just imagine what the Jews must have felt when a group emerges from within their own community that starts confessing something other than that. Imagine what they would have thought when Christians like Paul and Barnabas and their friends were walking into local synagogues and preaching sermons that said things like, Jesus is Lord, not Caesar. The Jewish people in these synagogues would have seen this as a threat. They would have seen it as a threat to their religious exemption. They would have seen it as a threat to their way of life. So it really didn't take long for the relationship between the synagogue and the church to become quite strained. It began to deteriorate rather significantly. And that was particularly true in a place like Philadelphia, where apparently the Jewish community was persecuting the church so severely, so intensely, that we'll just look at how Jesus refers to the synagogue in Philadelphia. He refers to them as a synagogue of Satan. A synagogue of Satan. Now we need to be careful. We need to be careful not to misread that. Jesus is not being anti-Semitic. Jesus loves ethnic Israel. In the Gospel of John, it says that when Jesus came, when he entered into human history, he came to his own, meaning he, he came to the people of Israel as one of them. 
So let's not draw a false conclusion here. Let's not draw a conclusion that the, the text does not ask us to draw. Instead, what we need to see is that Jesus is siding with his people. Right? This is not a dividing line between Jews and non-Jews. This is a dividing line between the world that does not believe in Jesus and the church that does. If the world is insistent upon drawing up battle lines against the church, you can be sure of which side Jesus is going to come down on. And he tells us why. He tells us why he has taken our side. Look at the last four words of verse 9. He says, I have loved you. I have loved you. That is our vindication when we are opposed by the world. In the end, there will be no doubt about it. There will be no question. Jesus loves his church. Even when the, moral, the world mocks us, even when it, it insults us or threatens us, or, or even when it harms us, Jesus will make his allegiance known. He will stand with his bride. And why wouldn't he? Why would he not do that? I mean, he spared absolutely no expense to obtain us. He, he took his love for us to a Roman cross where he stood in our place and died for our sins. He purchased us with his very own blood so that we might belong to him forever. And what that means is that no matter what we face, no matter who stands against us, no matter who opposes us, we can be sure that we will be vindicated. We will be vindicated by the words that he has spoken over his people. I have loved you. The world that rejects him. The world that at some point will reject you. Will sooner or later know who you really are. They will eventually see that you are the beloved. Of the king of kings and lord of lords. That's why we say what we say at the end of every worship service here at Emmaus. Right? We want to we remind you of the thing that is most true about you. We want to tell you the thing that is true about you above everything else in your life. That in Christ Jesus, you are loved with an everlasting love that will not quit on you. And when that hour comes where you are in need of vindication, the love of Jesus will be your vindication. But not only will Jesus vindicate his people, he will also deliver his people. He says in verse 10 that there's an hour coming. It'll be an hour of trial that comes upon the entire world, upon those who dwell on the earth. And Jesus says, I will keep you from that hour. I will guard you. I will protect you in that hour. Now, different interpreters of Revelation take this statement in this verse in different directions. But I believe that what Jesus is referring to here is the hour of judgment. The hour that he returns to render judgment upon the whole world. On that final day, here's what's going to happen. He will try each person. And he will cast the unbelieving wicked. Into eternal suffering. But those who are looking to him. 
He will deliver from the wrath that is to come. Those who are his, those who believe in his name, those who have repented of their sin will not be swept away with the wicked. No, we will, we will be delivered. We will, we will be spared. If we are in Christ, then we will surely receive the full protection of his justifying grace. So what this really comes down to is not whether his promises are true. They most certainly are true. What this comes down to, the question that lies before us today, is do we trust him? It's really that simple. Are we trusting in Jesus? I know that things aren't easy. I know how hard life can be. It can be turbulent, chaotic, uncertain. And sometimes it, th- it seems like things are just going to get harder. Right? Paul talks about this in 2 Timothy. He says that evil is going to go from bad to worse in this world. I mean, it feels that way, right? The world opposes the things of God more and more and more each day. The flesh tempts us to join in the flood of sin and debauchery. The devil, right? He's, he's prowling around, lurking in the shadows waiting to devour us when we are vulnerable. And yet with all these things standing against us right now, Jesus extends to us a simple invitation. An invitation that cuts through the noise and the chaos and the confusion and the clamoring. Jesus asks us, will you trust in me? Yes, even as the world, the flesh, and the devil are conspiring to do their worst, don't take your eyes off of Jesus. He tells you, set your mind not on things here below, but set your mind on things above, where Christ is, where he is seated at the right hand of God. Your life is hidden with Christ in God there in heaven. So in your moments of greatest suffering, in your moments of heartbreak, in moments where you are maligned and mistreated, there is only one thing that will carry you through. And it is simple, quiet, trust. Simple, quiet trust in the only one who can vindicate you. And the only one who can deliver you. And so we pray as he taught us to pray. Lord, lead us not into trial and temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory ever. Amen. And we know that the one, we we know the one who, who hears us when we pray that. We know what he says to us. He says it in verse 11. The very first statement he makes in that verse. I coming soon. I am coming soon. For those who have not repented of their sins, that is a terrifying statement. But for those who have repented and who are trusting in Jesus for us, those words should be an unparalleled source of comfort and consolation. That's really the final characteristic. Of a church that Jesus commends. A church that he commends is one that hopes in things that are to come. Look at what it said, what else it says in verse 11. We're told that we must hold fast to what we have. 
in order that no one may take away the crown that we will one day receive. And there's verse 12. It says, the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God. And the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven. And upon him will be written my own new name. Now this this promise becomes quite vivid when you think about what the ancient city of Philadelphia was like. Philadelphia was not anything to write home about. There was nothing particularly impressive about it. There was nothing notable about Philadelphia. Well, maybe there was one thing. Philadelphia was most known for its natural disasters. It was known for having earthquakes. It's located in modern-day Turkey, and it was located near a volcano. So more than one time, at more than one point, the city had just been absolutely like decimated, leveled to the ground because of the tectonic shifts that were taking place underneath the ground due to the, the volcanic activity of that nearby volcano. Another thing Philadelphia was known for was its economic instability. People didn't exactly flock to Philadelphia to find work. It was more the kind of place you would pass through on your way somewhere else. Someplace more prosperous. Like no one was looking at Philadelphia thinking, that's where I need to be. Right there, Philadelphia. And in the midst of all of that, you've got this church, right? This little church, this little beleaguered community of Christ followers that was shunned. That was looked down upon. They were persecuted. They were treated like the outcasts of society. So these Christians in Philadelphia were some of the lowest people in a city that didn't have much going on to begin with. And yet in the midst of all of that, when no one would look their way, except to mock and deride them. Jesus saw them. He saw them. He looked at this beleaguered church in a small, unimportant place, and he made them a promise. He made them a a glorious promise. He promised them a different city. He promised them a city that was unlike the one they were living in in just about every way. And this is significant because, you see, as Christians living in this present evil age, we have no lasting city. We are pilgrims desiring a better country, a heavenly one. We are seeking the city that is to come. And because of that, Jesus tells us he is not ashamed to be our God, for he is preparing for us a new city. This is what it tells us in the book of Hebrews. That we will inherit a city whose designer and builder is God himself. And we will enjoy a permanent place in that city. Just look at what Jesus says. The church in Philadelphia. He says that we will have an everlasting home in the temple of our God. We will exist. We will be fixed as a pillar in the house of the Lord. Now if you look back. At the 84th Psalm, this is the exact exact thing that the psalmist was longing for. In Psalm 84, it says, how lovely 
is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs. Yes, it even faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh sing for joy to the living God. The psalmist says, for a single day in the courts of your temple is better than a thousand days spent elsewhere. And yet in the new city that Jesus is preparing for his people, we will not enjoy just a single day. Our desire for God will not just receive a 24-hour treatment. No, we are promised an eternity with him. An eternity of enjoyment. An eternity receiving the one thing we're asking for. The one thing we're seeking after. We will dwell in the house of the Lord for eternal days where we will gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. We will inquire of him face to face of the riches of the glory that fill his temple. And there he will write his name upon us. Upon our spiritual passports. We will receive the eternal stamp of that city that comes down from heaven above. A city that that descends, that is adorned with glory and splendor, just as a bride being prepared for her husband. The city of Philadelphia had no good name. The Christians in Philadelphia, well, they had even less of a name. The name of Jesus would come and it would be stamped upon them. It would be written upon them eternally and it would rewrite their story. In the eyes of the world, their story was a story of failure. But to Jesus, they were a story of his ultimate success. And I don't know about you, but I want that to be true for Emmaus. I want that so badly to be true. I want it to be that Jesus looks upon us and sees. A gospel success story. And so as we wind things down today, I want to conclude by asking a question. I want to ask, how can we be this kind of church? How can we be the kind of church we've been talking about today? How, how can we be a church that Jesus gladly commends? We've seen what that looks like. Right? We've seen that descriptively. The church in Philadelphia has shown us the way. So the question now becomes not a matter of what, but of how. If you remember back in August, we answered the how question. We answered it with a sermon series where we focused on three things. We focused on creed, community, and commission. I believe that a church that devotes itself to those things will be poised to be in the eyes of Jesus a gospel success story. So Emmaus, I want to I exhort you. Devote yourself to these things. Devote yourself to our creed. We believe in sound doctrine because we want to know the Lord. We want to seek after him with our whole heart. We want to treasure the things of God. A church that devotes itself to the pursuit of truth will be a church that holds fast to that truth when we are at our weakest and when times become turbulent. I also want to exhort you to devote yourself to community. Practice gospel culture. That's why we covenant together. We covenant to do that because it's our conviction that what the church believes ought to determine what the church is like. So Emmaus, as you keep holding fast to the things of God, as you keep believing in the gospel, don't stop loving each other. 
Keep on encouraging each other. Keep on serving and ministering. Keep on pointing the people around you to the hope we have in Jesus Christ. And then finally, I want to exhort you. Devote yourself to commission. Pursue kingdom advancement. We not only focus inward. We don't just focus on each other. We also are sent by Christ to go out into the world so that we can minister to the lost and the broken. Remember what we talked about at the beginning of the sermon. Jesus has opened a door for us. We may have little power, but boy, we sure have a great opportunity. We have things like care portal, an angel tree. These are opportunities where we get to, to serve families that are really struggling. We get to come alongside them and meet their needs in a tangible way. We also have the share and invite initiative. Where we get to place in people's hands an invitation to come and experience gospel culture here at Emmaus. Church, I want to encourage you, press into these things. Take advantage of these opportunities. Make every effort through them to declare and display the gospel of Jesus. And I'm telling you, if we'll do that by grace through faith, we can be a gospel success story in his eyes.